For those who might be joining us outside of this service, by their means, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message entitled, The Lord's Blueprint for Building a Blessed Life in Christ. We're going to be studying together the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the aspect of the sermon called the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses. And we began this journey last Sunday, so those who are just now joining along with us, Catch up with us in verses 1 and 2, do some background research on the Sermon on the Mount, and you will be able to be right where we are. Uh, Hopefully you'll come away with a good biblical interpretation of how to view what Jesus is teaching here. I won't take time to do all of that this morning. I also would like to say for those uh, who are listening, there may be some issues with the audio, some background noise. That's because the wonderful people here at the community center where we meet have helped us not suffer in the heat without an HVAC. So they have brought in, I see a, a unit in the back here they brought in for us. So that means you'll stay cooler while you listen to me, which means in turn you'll stay awake. Any public speaker knows exactly what I'm talking about. Some of the hardest messages I've ever preached in the past years that I've been here have been when it's roasting in this room. And it's not because of a lack of content or preparation or study or power of the Spirit. It's just lethargy from the heat. It has an effect on us. We get comfortable. And I have kind of a soothing voice. You're you're catching on to that now. Some of you, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Don't don't drift up. Come back. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. The Lord's blueprint for building a blessed life in Christ. Now, for those... uh, you know, who are old enough or somebody who grew up in the 50s, you might be quite familiar with the name Mickey Cohen because he was the most flamboyant criminal of the day. Perhaps some have even heard of Cohen's becoming, quote, a Christian. I'd like to use this to get us to think about what Jesus is teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount because the story goes like this. At the height of his career, Cohen was persuaded to attend an evangelistic service at which he showed a surprising interest in Christianity. Hearing of this and realizing what a great influence a converted Mickey Cohen could have for the Lord, some prominent Christian leaders began visiting him in an effort to convince him to accept Christ. Well, late one night, after repeatedly being encouraged to open the door of his life on the basis of Romans 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any, any man hear my voice and open, I will come into him and sup with him, he with me. Based off that verse, Cohen prayed. Hopes ran high among his believing acquaintances. But what, with the passing of time, no one could detect any change whatsoever in Cohen's life. None. Finally, they confronted him with the reality that being a Christian meant, hey, uh, Mickey, you're going to have to give up some of your friends. You're going to have to give up your profession of being a criminal. Cohen demurred. His logic? Well, there are Christian football players. Um, There's Christian cowboys. There's Christian politicians. Why not have a Christian gangster? How absurd is that? How absurd. And yet, that's an extreme case, right, Mickey Cohen? That's like the worst of the worst, trying to get somebody saved and then expecting them to just change overnight, get rid of all his gangster lifestyle. He wouldn't have it. Why? Because he is, he's approaching this thing like so many do today. 
We'll just add Jesus to the rest of whatever we're doing. I tried that before I really started living for the Lord. I'll tell you firsthand, it doesn't work. I'm going to ask you to take my word for it because I don't want you to go try to find out. It doesn't work. If you don't want to take my word, then read the Bible. Read, read certain portions of Scripture about how everything in this life is vanity and vexation of spirit. And then read the Sermon on the Mount and see if you can really hang on to what you're hanging on to and keep it in the midst of what Jesus is saying in particularly these Beatitudes. Absurd. Mickey Cohen. You know, that dramatically underscores what's happening to untold members today. One writer put it like this. Though many ostensibly have accepted Christ, they continue life as they always have. There's no genuine repentance. They remain self-sufficient, even sometimes puffed up. Indeed, they are nowhere near the kingdom because they have not experienced the poverty of spirit that the first beatitude insists is the initial ground of the kingdom of heaven. I like how he put it. He went on to say this. What evangelical Christianity, and that's broadly using that term, okay, understand it. What evangelical Christianity needs is an exposure to the life-giving logic of the Beatitudes and the blessedness of their fearsome surgery. Listen to that again, carefully. What evangelical Christianity needs is an exposure to, I would go beyond not just exposure to, but an, an, an adoption of, an endorsement of, an acquiescence into your life of the life-giving logic. It doesn't make sense in the world's philosophy, but in God's economy it makes perfect sense to seek the blessedness. Life-giving logic of the Beatitudes, the blessedness of their fearsome surgery. You cannot approach this passage without having the Word of God do surgery upon you. Matthew chapter number 5, I'd like to read with you, beginning at verse number 1, and we'll read down to verse number 12. Bible recounts in Matthew chapter number 5 and verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, that is Jesus, went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Listen carefully now. Let these words ring in your ears. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your word powerfully, that you would help us to overcome things in our life that are keeping us from seeing you, as the Beatitudes promise, we'll see you with a pure in heart. Mold us after the image of Christ. We'll thank you for the time we can have in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. For those who were here last time, I shared with you how I approached the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in that I see it really as a discipleship ethic. This is uh, for the followers of Jesus. One day, there is an eschatological aspect of it in which the kingdom will come, right? That's how we're taught to pray, even in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. One day, Jesus will come. He will rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. And at that point, everything that we read about in the Beatitudes will be ruled with a rod of iron, as the king's law, if you will. But until then, it's not enough to just lay up the Beatitudes, to lay up Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and wait until he comes. No, these words are applicable for us today. They are applicable for followers of Christ. If you're a disciple, then you ought to be trying everything in your power through the Holy Spirit. In your own strength, you'll fail. But through the Holy Spirit, being submitted to God, saying, Lord, I want to live the way Jesus wants me to, then you're going to come to the Beatitudes and say, maybe there's some adjustments I need to make in life. Maybe I need to look a little deeper in my own heart. Maybe this external looking good on the outside isn't measuring up before God. Maybe I need something more on the inside. Maybe, as we mentioned this morning in Sunday school, I need to get past the sun, S-U-N, and look at the sun, S-O-N, and to consider Jesus. I'll tell you, if you're stuck on just the externals, going to church and reading your Bible and praying, all of those are good things, and I encourage anyone to do that. But if you're doing those at the expense of not seeing Jesus, then I would submit to you, you are missing out on so much. The Beatitudes draw us to the feet of our Savior, who died for us. And if there's anyone's words that we should cling to, that we should we should pour over every word he said and linger upon. It's these words. And we join those that sat on a mountainside one day as Jesus, it says, opened his mouth and taught them. We join them. And we consider what many have considered in the past, the preacher, the sermon, the setting, all of that factors in to how this sermon, if you call it a sermon, came to be. We know it as a sermon on the mount. But when you look at Jesus' preaching, his preaching is listed in chapter 4 as taking up the message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to say Jesus is preaching a message, that's what message he preached, as well as helped people. As we think about the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to have to glean on some knowledge that I have to just presuppose you have. In other words, I can't start from day one and and start from scratch and build everything. We don't have time. So for sake of looking at what we're looking at today, I want you to think about where Jesus is at in Jewish history. I want you to think about where we're at in American history as today is Memorial Sunday and how we became a nation and those stories that we read and and talk about today, you know, stories that revolve maybe around uh, characters like George Washington or other prominent 
people in American history. I want you to think about where the Jewish people would be as Jesus is giving this sermon. What are they thinking in terms of national history? They are under the thumb of a mighty empire. In this day and time, Caesar is on the rise. When Jesus Christ was born, we're told that his parents had to relocate from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Do you remember that? Why did they have to go to Bethlehem? Well, Luke 2 tells us because in those days, there was a Caesar who made a worldwide decree that all the world should be taxed, which then fit into the providential plan of God to get Mary and Joseph to the prophesied place where Messiah would be born. Caesar Augustus. A long history going back to a mythical founding. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm not a scholar on the history of Rome. I don't pretend to be. I know enough just to be able to scratch my head and go, boy, that's some crazy stuff. But think about how Rome began. In contrast to how the Jewish people began. Now, you probably know your Jewish history and how that nation began a lot better than you do your Roman history like me if you spend more time in the Bible because the Bible doesn't talk a lot about Roman history. The Jews, you know, how did the nation of Israel become? God delivered them by the exodus from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt and they became a mighty nation. And then they grew to the point under Solomon's reign that, 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 that the whole world came to see all that God had done through the Jewish people. The sons of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to whom God made these promises. Well, they lost their vision of God. They began to allow idolatry to tear them away from their covenant with Jehovah. And because they violated the Mosaic Covenant, the Palestinian Covenant had to be put in place. And they were then judged by God, beginning in the north with the Assyrian nation coming to take them, and the north ten tribes taken captive. Following that, the southern tribes of Judah, Benjamin, those would be taken by Nebuchadnezzar eventually into Babylon. And the nation would then be dispersed. And during that time, you have men like Daniel who stand up and prophesy and have visions from God. And he sees this image with a head of gold in the, in the chest and in the description. You remember Daniel's vision. In that vision, prophecy teaches us that Daniel was laying forth what human history would hold up to the time when the stone would come that was cut without hands. And each kingdom was prophesied by Daniel to arise and then to be conquered, to arise and be conquered, to arise and be conquered, beginning with Babylon, the head of gold, and then the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then lastly the feet, remember it was clay with iron, I believe, the feet would be which nation? Empire, I should say. That would be Rome. And each of the three preceding it would have someone who would conquer it, but not the feet. They would disintegrate, which is what Rome did. Now, think about with me where Jesus is at on the shores of Galilee. I believe that's where he was, by the way. On the shores of Galilee, the north shores of Galilee. And he goes up into this mountain and he teaches this sermon. Think in your mind how maybe some Jewish people are beginning to put some things together about Daniel's prophecy, about how Rome began. If you don't know the history of Rome, Romulus is who it's founded after. Who's Romulus? Romulus. Who founded Rome? Romulus. What do you know about Romulus? Well, he's Romulus. 
That's what we know about Romulus. Was he real? I don't know. He might have been a mythical figure. You know, that, that over the course of time, everybody attributed all these stories to about how Rome came to be. Romulus had a brother named Remus, right? And these were the descendants of the great 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 I don't know how many greats, but a lot of greats, grandson of the Trojan War. And Rome came to be because of a great migration that occurred, in essence, that moved those who left the Greek wars, the Trojan Wars, over to that Roman peninsula. Romulus and Remus, brothers that were left for dead, supposedly executed. And they grow up raised by some wolf. Uh, there's some shady history going on there behind that wolf, by the way. Shepherd found them and raised them because there was flooding going on. And that's how the myth says it. It's all legend. These are Roman legends. Romulus, through the course of time, wound up being the king of the area. And it's terrible how they how they actually continued on. Romulus, Rome, okay, I don't have time to go through all that. Rome became Rome because of might, because of power. If you read how Romulus seduced the Sabines to come to a big party and then gave the signal and all the men, you know, they're just kind of the dregs of society anyway. No, no parents wanted to give their daughters to marriage to these Romans you know, under Romulus, because they were just the dregs of society. He opened the doors for everybody to come because he's trying to build this, this, this kingdom, right? Nobody would give their daughters, go figure. So he throws this party, according to the legend, and, and then he gives the signal, and all his men fall upon the saving women that are there, wife and the, the daughters. They take them and they capture them and kidnap them. And they busted up the whole party. Well, War, you know, so the whole history of Rome is founded around war. In Rome, eventually, Romulus would, would put into place a hundred uh, senators, and then later on, when he joins up with another group, uh, Rome will add another hundred, and so then it continues to grow in the Roman legions. Rome became a power because of their military might, not because of their humility, not because they were such spiritual people. They came to power by the strength of man raising his head against really sometimes all his, uh, everything that's holy. How did the Jewish nation arise? I'm telling you this so you have kind of a little context in your mind. When Jesus talks about his coming kingdom, it's not going to be because men are so strong and powerful like Romulus, they can get a gathering. But what happened to the Roman nation? It dissipated. It imploded. It destroyed all. There was no conqueror that came and conquered Rome as of yet. In fact, they're back together. But when you read the prophecies of Scripture, you know that Daniel prophesied there's a stone that's cut without hands that one day will come and throw down Rome, both, both physically and spiritually. There's a spiritual aspect to Rome. The fellow who took over after Romulus was very spiritual in a mythical pagan kind of God way. Basically, they just took all the Greek gods and adopted them and made their own. Have you ever noticed how much similarities there are when you read stories about Roman gods and Greek gods? Sometimes I get so confused because it's like they're saying the same thing. You know, Jupiter and Mars. Why? Because, well, they just plagiarized it all from the Greeks. That's what they did. They, they're not smart enough to make it their own, so they just take the Greeks and make, make it back. Rome versus the Jewish people. 
Now, the Jewish people on that hillside on this day, when you come to John chapter number 6, they're ready to lay hands on Jesus to make him king, right? To take him because they want him to throw down Caesar. So when he gives this sermon, if they're looking to him and looking to him to be Messiah, they're going to say, he's the one. He's the one that's going to establish our Jewish nation again. And we're going to be able to follow him to victory. He's going to be our leader. I almost want to entitle a message in the future, The Great Disappointment. Only, only for those who see it as a disappointment. Why would the Jewish leaders get so fed up with Jesus that they crucified him? Well, because he attacked everything they believed in and everything that they had established as their religious rule of order. The Jewish people are looking for a deliverer at this time. Jesus, walking by the seashore, finds his disciples, and he calls them one by one, and they come and they follow him. He has a little following of disciples now, and he goes up into this mountain, and his disciples come to him. Well, time is getting away from me. I'm talking about all this history. Let's look at the text. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. When he was set, his disciples came unto him. As we think about the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus ascending into this mountain. The ascension of Jesus, not the ascension where he goes to heaven on the Mount of Olives later. That's after the crucifixion and resurrection. But it's interesting. He ascends up into this mountain. And then we note the arrival of the disciples. They come to him. I think that we can learn something even from that by way of application. His disciples came unto him. I know I'm pointing out the obvious. Yeah, that's what they came. Don't you get it? They came. They actually came. Jesus called them by the shore. He was teaching. They saw all that he had done with miracles. And when he goes up into this mountain, they say, hey, maybe I need to be where he is. And they come to Jesus. And I just say that by way of application in this sense. When are you going to come? When are you going to come to Jesus? Not just come to church. Not just come to do some outward things that make you look like you're a Christian and all of that. When are you going to come to Jesus himself? When are you going to sit at his feet? So Jesus ascends into this mountain. His disciples uh, come, the arrival of the disciples, and then we note that he opens his mouth and begins his teaching. In a sitting position, uh, this would be common for the rabbis of his day. He was known as a rabbi, teacher. All of that fits the context of who Jesus was. Why? What's the purpose of these Beatitudes? Now, Beatitudes are these first 12 verses, really verses 3 through 12, and uh, we'll talk about how many there are here in just a moment. But why? I believe these Beatitudes show us the character of a disciple. If you want to define a disciple and know how a disciple should look inside, and then outwardly it will impact that, the character. The Beatitudes define a character of a disciple. The Beatitudes also show us the reward that a disciple has for giving their life to follow Jesus. It will be worth it. How many are there? It's debatable. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I believe there's eight. You don't have to go along with me on eight. You can say seven, you can say nine, but you're going to be wrong because there's eight. That'll sink you in a minute. I'm joking. Phil said, yes, I'm joking that you don't have to believe me uh, when I say eight because there's no verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt knowest that there are eightest beatitudes. You won't find it. There are eight 
the way that I categorize this, because I see verses one to ten, or verses three to ten, being a bookmark, uh, being bookends and inclusio, and I really take verse ten as expanding into verses eleven and twelve. So when I count them, I count them as eight. There are good preachers, good commentaries you'll read that say there's nine. Most of them say there's nine, I think, but I'm going to hold to eight. How are they constructed? When you read a beatitude, you need to look for three elements. There's an inscription of blessedness. There's a description of who the blessedness is to. And there's a statement for the reason that he or she is blessed. There's a reward for that. So those are the three aspects when Jesus gives this beatitude. Now keep in mind, this is simply his introductory statements. This is his way of getting the attention of those that are at his feet. We have all kinds of fancy things today that I can try to use to keep you awake and keep you on task and get your attention and, and all those things. You know, There's plenty of teachers that are much better at this than I am. But at this day, they don't have PowerPoint presentations. They don't have you know slides. They don't have electronics. They don't have all the things that we're so used to. All they have, they don't have screens or any of that. All they have is oratory. And so when Jesus says these words, it's going to cause people to hang on the I don't know about you, but you know the King James Bible in particular was written to be read out loud. And I love that about it. It's so beautiful to hear. I don't know about you, but when I hear this being read out loud, I just kind of have to hit the brakes on everything and stop and listen. Maybe you like that too. I just hang on these words. That's the power of this preacher. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, actually called him the Prince of Preachers, the Lord Jesus Christ, here on the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at the language, the way that it's structured, there's a lot of present use, but I'm going to say it's present with a future force. So there is a future looking, but there's also an aspect in which it applies to us now. The reward. The reward that comes. Uh, It was one of my instructors, he phrased it like this when I was in college. The disciple of Christ is enjoined to a present ethic which is grounded in eschatological blessing. That's a good, that's a good way to summarize it. I think. A present ethic grounded in eschatological blessing. This is how you are to live now in light of what will happen then. Are you with me on that? Yeah, that makes sense. So we move ahead with that. What is the meaning of a beatitude? Well, let me start by saying what it's not. A beatitude is not simply morality. Now, are there there moral things that we can learn from it? Yes, but a beatitude in itself is not simply your morality. A beatitude speaks of, of Christian character. So, in other words, what I'm saying is a beatitude is not simply some external character trait some external uh, observation, some external action that you do. A beatitude is not out here. A beatitude is really an attitude of the heart. The attitude, an attitude of being. It's who you are on the inside. So a beatitude gets away from all the chafe, all of the externals, and begins to focus on the inside to say, who are you in? before God and how are you living that out before others Christian character an interchange that 
affects our conduct outwardly. It does, eventually. But the focus, the goal, is on the inside. A beatitude is ultimately based on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Who is the most blessed person, the most blessed human we could ever say lived? Who is the only one that we could say measures up to every one of these beatitudes? You'll never find a flaw in any facet of the beautiful gem of the life of our Savior. You won't find a single flaw when it comes to these beatitudes. You put me under a microscope, you'll find plenty. Probably you don't live too far away from me. So let's turn our focus on Jesus. And let's say, I want to strive to have God polish some more of my flaws to help me look more like Him. It's based on the character of God. It's based on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Himself, He is the living beatitude, right? He's the one who exemplifies what it is to be true character on the inside before God. But it's also based on the character of God Himself. 1 Timothy 1.11. If you think about God, who is He? What we know about God, He is perfectly content. Listen to me now. He is perfectly content. He is extremely happy. Uh, there's no one that can be happier in that sense than God is with who He is. Would God ever desire to be somebody else other than who God is? Absolutely not. He's content with who He is. He's a happy God. And He has chosen to confer this happiness on His creation, particularly in the beatitudinal aspect of those that would say, I want to be like Jesus on the inside. So if you'll let God change your heart on the inside, then you can know the blessings that are based off God and His character Himself. That helps us understand a little bit of the setting of this sermon. Secondly, I would point you to learn how to lean on the Lord. Now as we look at the Beatitudes, I mentioned I count them as eight. That works well for what we're going to do because we can really take them in two sets of four. Two sets of four. The first four Beatitudes deal with who we are before God. The last four Beatitudes deal with what we do about that and living it out before others. I think as you study the Beatitudes, you'll see that to be the case. So simply put, our outline for this is simply learning to lean on the Lord and then living for the Lord before others. That encapsulates these two sections of the Beatitudes. Now you have your outline. I've already given you, given you, you know, some thoughts there to consider. First off, if we're going to learn to lean on the Lord, we have to find His favor in spiritual dependence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is someone who is absolutely destitute of any personal righteousness in and of themselves. They've said goodbye to that. This is someone who is absolutely dependent on Christ's righteousness alone. Remember, Paul said it, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God. If you continue to read Romans 1, 16, 17, and 18, you'll find out that there's some revelation happening. The wrath of God is revealed against sin, but also God's grace and mercy his righteousness is revealed through the gospel. 
person who's poor in spirit will find favor in God's eyes because they are absolutely and completely and wholly dependent on the Lord and not themselves in any way. How do you get to that place? How do you arrive at being poor in spirit? Well, look where it's placed. I don't think it's any accident. In fact, I'm convinced, you'll not convince me any, any other way, that this is not the first beatitude on purpose. It's exactly where Jesus wants it to be. It's the first one we encounter because this is what the rest of them all hinge upon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When will this kingdom of heaven reward be realized? In the millennium. That's when we'll get this reward, the kingdom of heaven, to rule and reign with Christ. So we live now, again, in light of that. Let me give some texts. If you're going to be walking as poor in spirit as what Jesus is describing, you could ask yourself some simple questions. Are you amazed at God's grace? When you think about how benevolently good God is to you, in light of what you really deserve, you stand in awe of that. Does the grace of God stagger you? Abraham believed God and it was counted into righteousness. When trials and tribulations came into his life, the Bible says he was firm in that he staggered not promises of God. So if you're going to be poor in spirit, I would say you're going to be a person who is in awe of the grace of God. If you're going to be poor in spirit, you're going to be a person who, when you sin, it drives you to your knees before God. When you consider who you are, you're absolutely aware of your continued sinfulness after salvation. Did you know Christians sin? If you were with us on Wednesday nights, one of the points I made recently was that sometimes some of the worst sinners are God's people. We were studying about Simeon and Levi. You know, that was a really nasty story, what they did at Shechem. Sinners. You realize that after someone trusts Christ, it doesn't mean that they stop sinning? Some people have taught the reverse of that and done great damage to what it means to follow Jesus because people think that they can achieve something that God hasn't given to us yet. One day we'll be glorified. Are you amazed at God's grace? Are you aware of your continued sinfulness? Are you aware of your continual need for God? You need Him. There's never a time you don't need Him. If you ever get to a place where you feel like you don't need Him, I'd say you need Him more then than any time because you've become self-sufficient. And that can lead to self-righteousness really in the end. And that's where the Pharisees were at that Jesus will condemn later. And friend, if what we're talking about brings an offense to you, then I would say, you're not poor in spirit. You can't be. Let's stand in awe of the grace of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we find His favor, find God's favor, His blessing, if you will, in spiritual dependence. Find His favor in a sorrowful reflection. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Simply put, are you broken over your personal sin? Are you broken over the sin of the world around you? If you're going to realize that you're poor in spirit, I'll tell you, that's going to drive you to your knees to mourn before God might even cause you to shed some tears about who you are on the inside. God, I just, I'm not like you. I want to be like you, but I'm not like you. Where's the reward? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Where's the reward for this? I would submit to you again, it is in the millennium. Remember, the Lord says that one day all tears will be wiped away. That's not going to happen until a long time after after everything has occurred. We have at least seven years, you know, seven seven years plus, a thousand years. So that, that, that's a millennium in seven years if the Lord comes back in three seconds. <laughs> all tears wiped away. That's future. But I'll tell you, God can send His grace and His comfort now. If anybody's walked with the Lord, you've experienced the sorrows of life. They've hit you like they did me. There have been times, inexplicably, I cannot explain this. Everything's in turmoil. And I pull back the window shade and I gaze out over God's creation. And a still small voice comes over me. And a tranquility that passes my understanding calms my heart and my life. And I just say, Lord, in the midst of it all, you're right here with me. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be Notice the word shall is used on every one of these. Shall be is the strongest way the Lord can say it. So let me give you some things in a particular order. And I'm out of time, but we'll close with this. If you're going to be a person who mourns looking for the comforting hand of God in the sense that you're mourning over your state of sinfulness before Him, poor in spirit, dependent on Him. If you're mourning the way Jesus wants you to, then do you mourn over sin in particular? What are you doing about that sin? How is it changing what you're going to do this week? How is it going to change what you do tomorrow when you think about your sin that is grieving the Holy Spirit, if you're saved, and possibly quenching Him in your... What are you going to do about that? Because it's driving a wedge between you and God, and friend, it is not worth it. And if you'll cry over it, if you'll mourn over it, if you'll truly sorrow over it and see it the way God does, there might be a difference. You might just do something about it. Secondly, does it send you to God? Does it bother you? Do you truly change your mind about it? Repentance. Great word. A lot of confusion around repentance. If you're going to repent through this kind of mourning, it's a godly sorrow that worketh repentance. If that's going to happen, you're going to have to change your mind. That's what repentance means. That means God is not okay with what you're doing. And you need to agree with Him about that. Because you've been lying to yourself and telling yourself that God is letting you by with it and it's not as big of a deal and it's a big deal. And when you change your mind about it, and it begins to bother you like it bothers God, you might be ready to mourn the way Jesus is saying you should mourn. Do you truly repent? 
I'm not talking about just getting right with God because you feel guilty. I'm talking about true changing in your mind, which leads to a change in your heart. This will lead you, eventually, to hate that which God hates. That's a word people throw around today, right? It's all prevalent through our society. Read the sign on the door out there when you come in that this is a safe area. I can read between the lines. I know what they're saying about that. It is a safe area for those who are in Christ. If you're coming to the gospel, and Jesus, hey, Jesus Christ is the epitome of love, right? We wouldn't know how to love if it weren't for Him. But do we hate sin? I did not say we hate people. You should never hate any person. That's bombing. But sometimes people do wicked things. And that ought to upset you. Because it upsets God. Just because he's not blasting everybody with lightning bolts doesn't mean he's okay with it. Right? Do you see it the way God does? If you do, then I would say... You would be mourning over your condition. And it would drive you to Jesus. Drive you even closer to Him. Now, because it's Memorial Day, and I promised you we would stop there. We've covered two out of the eight. We can count them as eight. So we've made some good progress. But I won't belabor it anymore. I think, I think our sponge is about full right now. I'll close with this story. Because of the reward that's given... Every one of these has a blessing and a promise that's connected to it. Because it's Memorial Day, I'll use, I'll use this story here about General MacArthur. Sharing the glory. One day the Lord is going to have rewards for those who are faithful to Him. Listen to how General MacArthur uh, handled the closing, the signing of the documents at the surrender officially ending World War II. So these were signed by the Japanese. They were designated representatives of allied nations. This was on September 2nd, 1945. General Douglas MacArthur, officiating the ceremony aboard the USS Missouri, was the last to sign on behalf of the United States. MacArthur took his Parker fountain pen and simply signed his first name, Douglas. He then passed the pen over to General Wainwright, who signed Mac. MacArthur then handed the pen to General Percival, who signed Arthur. It was unusual. It was his name, but three different generals signed it. Significant. It was his way of honoring the two U.S. generals who had suffered severe persecution as prisoners of war. They had persevered. And now, because they were able to stand with him in that ceremony, they were allowed to share in the glory of victory. It was not their name that they were signing. One day, likewise, Paul describes those who press on 
amongst the spiritual battles that are fought this side of heaven. And he calls, Paul calls them co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ. What that means in light of this illustration is one day the Lord's going to come. It's His name on the victory. It's going to pass us the pen, spiritually speaking. And we're going to get to sign His name participate in what He did in conquering sin for all. As we think about this flag, we think about those who united behind it to give their life for it. There's a reward. You and I are enjoying some fruits of their sacrifice. There's a reward in heaven for those who will live for the Lord in light of what the Beatitudes teach. I challenge you. Do the work in here. Your heart. Get past the externals and look at who you really are before God. Are you poor in spirit? Are you mourning over sin the way God really wants you to? If you are, then His promise of blessing is sure. It surely will be yours. Let that drive you on through everything that you have to go through for, for the Lord. You can be used again. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. You're the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The victory is yours because you've overcome the world. And we are of good cheer because of that. As we celebrate our freedoms and rejoice with tears in our eyes because of those that have given their life's blood for us to stand on free American soil, we spiritually look inside ourselves before the cross of Calvary. Realizing that as you taught these Beatitudes, you had before you that gruesome death where you would shed your life's blood to pay the penalty for sins once for all. Those who would come to you by faith would be able to receive everlasting life through what you did. With tears in our eyes, Lord, we mourn over the condition of mankind Yea, my own sinful condition that drove you to Calvary. You went of your own volition, but it was my sin that put you there. O oh Lord, may I live in light of these Beatitudes and be completely dependent upon you for everything I need. May I see sin the way that you do, knowing that one day I'll have the comfort from you that only the balm of Gilead can provide for the soul that might be lost, I pray that they would seek Christ and His salvation. For the disciple who is trying to figure out what it is to live for the Lord Jesus, I pray that they would come to Him.